This good, Mom? It's good. Something's buzzing. Are you trying to turn that light, the overhead light off, Josh? This is going to be episode 74 of Commonplace. And this one, I'm sort of the guest, and other people are interviewing me. We've got Sharon Olds, Craig Morgan Teicher, Kathy Park Hong, and Wayne Kostenbaum. Who are you, who are you talking to right now? <laughs> I'm just teasing. I didn't, I didn't write. <laughs> okay, start over. Well, I don't understand. I don't understand. Start over. What is, what are you? This is way too loud. Sorry. Okay. I, I screwed up. Count in. Huh? This time count in. Hi, husband. Hi, wife. (laughs) So my hope was to kind of talk openly on the podcast about the fact that my book is coming out and it's my first book that's come out since I've been doing the podcast. And normally I speak to all these other people about their books and I thought it would be interesting to talk about my book. And one of the things that when I asked Craig, who would you want to hear me talk to? He said, you. So here I am talking to you. It's funny because I was, I was, I don't have a, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I'm, I'm a little <laughs> tongue tied right now. I don't feel, I, I both feel, I feel a lot of contradictory feelings. I feel that this book is different from the other books. And I also don't. And I feel that it is like, in ways that I have wanted from you. And this is sort of what I imagine talking about with you. Like, I feel like it's louder and more confidently you than any of the other books, even though they were too. There's something that I've been, feel like I've been cheerleading for that this book is. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm like really excited about that, but I also feel like maybe there might be something wrong with me. Like I feel complicit somehow in this book that I've been asking you to do something or, and maybe it's bad, not bad aesthetically somehow, but like wicked, you know, somehow. Do you, do you think that's true? Do you think that's somehow, do you think it's true about your work at all? Or do you think it's, I don't and, know. what are you asking me? Do I think it's w- wicked? Well, there's two things I'm saying. D- that you, um, first of all, you were just nodding your head like you agreed. And then you, then when I asked you, you well, realized, as if you didn't, as if you didn't have any idea what I was talking about. Let, let's go back a little, okay? Well, I don't know. I thought you were understanding me. Now I'm a little bit taken back. Okay. They don't seem to understand what I'm saying. Can so. we start over one more time? Let's, let's start from the beginning. Okay. Ready? Yep. Hi there. You're listening to my husband, Josh Gorin, and I talk in fits and false starts about my new book, Sound Machine, out today, September 17th, 2019, from Wave Books. Sound Machine is my 10th book, my first since beginning this podcast in 2016, and my first since I published Mothers and the Pedestrians in 2014. Sound Machine is also the name of an accompanying immersive audio project, also live today, on Bandcamp. For the audio project, I collaborated with three sound designers, T.K. Broderick, Nathaniel Wokstein, and Alicia Joe Rabins. Not quite spoken word, not quite audiobook, more similar perhaps to music in the way the pieces are designed and conceived, 
I'm still working on new audio pieces, hoping to put out an album of 8 to 10 pieces from the book. I've mentioned the new book and the audio project on many previous episodes of Commonplace, and every single Commonplace guest, their books, their lives, our conversations, has had an effect on this book and audio project. And you, listener, have also been part of the making of these projects. So, to celebrate the release of the book and audio project, to investigate the feelings surrounding the publication of the book and launch of the audio, we offer you this episode, which, in the style of the book, makes public what is often kept private, speaks thoughts and worries aloud, and tends towards capaciousness. I asked former Commonplace guests, the folks that are some of my friends, mentors, peers, critics, co-conspirators, and inspirations, to interview me for this episode. So you'll hear more from Josh and then, in this order, excerpts of conversations between Wayne Kostenbaum, Sharon Olds, Craig Morgan Teicher, and Kathy Park Hong, and myself. And then we'll return to this conversation with Josh. If you want to hear more about these amazing writers, I encourage you to revisit the long conversations I recorded with each one of them about their work. The excerpts that you'll hear range in length and audio quality. My conversations with Kathy and Craig were recorded over the phone and don't sound as clear as the one I recorded with Sharon in her apartment or with Wayne in his studio. I learned so much about myself and my work from listening and re-listening to these conversations. I also learned that it's much harder for me to talk about my work than someone else's, that I might be better at asking questions than answering them, and that I vastly prefer face-to-face recordings than over the phone. I also learned that I am truly blessed to have a community of writers who are willing to speak directly and openly with me about poetry, life, love, publication, and bears. I'm thrilled that some Commonplace Book Club members will receive copies of Sound Machine, as well as these amazing recently released books by my interviewers. Circus by Wayne Kostenbaum, Arias by Sharon Olds, The Trembling Answers, To Keep Love Blurry, and We Begin in Gladness, all by Craig Morgan Teicher. Winter by Sarah Vapp, and Minor Feelings, an Asian-American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong, will be available when it is published in 2020. Many thanks to Wave Books, Soft Skull Press, Penguin Random House, Boa Editions, Noemi Press, and Grey Wolf for these wonderful books. And deep gratitude to Josh, Wayne, Sharon, Craig, and Kathy for their time, attention, honesty, support, and friendship and for being part of Commonplace again. All Commonplace patrons will have access to an audio file of me reading my long poem, Confessional, and access to the immersive audio version of The Moon is in Her Call Tonight before it is released on Bandcamp. If you want more information about the book, the audio project, Wayne, Sharon, Craig, and Kathy, or to find out how to support Commonplace or the audio project, please visit commonpodcast.com and follow Sound Machine on Instagram and Twitter. As always, I'm nervous about these projects, including this episode, being out in the world 
I'm so grateful for the insights afforded to me by these conversations, but several moments make me cringe in embarrassment. So, if you're willing, send me your thoughts and comments about this episode, or just enjoy these sometimes illuminating, sometimes cringeworthy moments, and know how grateful I am for your attention and interest. Here's Josh, then Wayne, then Sharon, then Craig, then Kathy, and then Josh again. Hi. Hi. When I imagined recording this introduction with you, I occasionally thought of starting with this question, am I always this nervous when I have a book coming out? Hmm. Yes. You're always nervous. You always are worried that you've done something and then there are a few different negative adjectives that you put afterwards that it's bad, that people are going to see you as a fraud in some way or that it's going to be offensive to someone. And a lot of people... Or ignored. Right. Which is a kind of a contradiction in a way, but... I think that's both reassuring and upsetting to me, mm-hmm. the idea that it would just be ignored. And you, in the past, have also been worried about people being jealous of you. That that one I haven't heard so much this time, but... Yeah, just the fact that you just said that made me cringe. In this case, I mean, there's a real question of... Are the kids going to read the book? Mm-hmm. It's the first person you gave the book to, our oldest son. Mm-hmm. So you're, uh, you're waiting so for I a girl to go up to one of them at a party and be like, it must be the worst thing in the world to have that mom who writes about you or, you know, or Aren't you something. ashamed? Aren't you embarrassed? Aren't right. you, um, I'm so sorry, you know, and, and just to cast it in a negative, something in a negative light that they may never have thought of in a negative light. And, and meanwhile, okay. there's me. <laughs> yeah, well, and why? And so, why have you encouraged me in this for mm. 20 years? Well, there's one possible answer to that question is that there's something wrong with me. <laughs> but yes. it's something particular that has matched me with you. I have a lot of jokes that fit into this about my life where I say, you know, I'd rather be, you know, I have an idea that I'd rather be infamous than ignore, than ignored. I love being a character in literature. I joke about it a lot. I'm endlessly amused by your nearly true representation of even horrifically embarrassing and even tragic things that have happened to me. I feel like really lucky to have a kind of literary space in which to reimagine and consider my own life. I sometimes forget that not everyone has that. I mean, I actually do it in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's kind of what talk therapy is. You go and you tell your stories. Well, I have like another, this other space. It's And it's like bizarrely artificial and one-sided. But so, yeah, I really, I've really valued that. And I, and I also am really protected. I love that you said it's bizarrely <laughs> artificial and one-sided and I've really valued it. <laughs> I don't know. I really, well, what do you, well, you know, so, and I like to think about, you know, it's, it's part of a conversation that has also been really interesting to me, just like about literature and about the way in which 
that's also true about all literature, right? I mean, it's we read novels. I read. I like to read novels, and I think I read your books more as novels because I don't read a lot of poetry, and um, I read them very much for their narrative. I get lose interest if I can't figure out what's going on, and. What we, you know, people read novels and they see a reflection. A biz- I think it is those adjectives they chose are true, like a bizarrely artificial, one-sided reflection of the world. There's been a lot of great moments, you know, where I've been in an audience of people, and it's I enjoy the tension in the moment when you're reading something that, for most people, would would be might be really embarrassing, and people are kind of not looking and not looking at me to see if I'm confirming something that's in that's happened in that in the book. I think there's so so one thing about this book is there's a lot of that in this book. And it's not just me. A lot of what in this book? A lot of of our of of life, like raw depictions of you know, moments that private moments and that are private. I chose that word. I mean private like, you know, not heroic depictions of us. So wow, Rachel. Hi. We're we're live, right? We're on the air. I know. So we're, we're just sitting here. <laughs> so it's sort of funny to do we have radio mind on now. A little, little more self-conscious thinking about thinking about this. So I have I don't have specific questions about the poems mm-hmm. that you suggested. I read the whole book and I have, oh my I have a few no and I love it. It's so Thank interesting. You. I read it on the computer as I told you, mm-hmm. so it's a different experience. Um, first question is a kind of obvious one, but I, I, reading the book, I ruminated a lot about the different meanings of sound machine, mm. and I would love to hear how many different meanings ad- adhere to that phrase for you. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think that I started to notice that I was very preoccupied with the word sound or with the concept of sound. And I don't, I think that sometimes I'm really talking about speech or utterance um, and definitely the difference between like thoughts and speech or the written word. And, you know, that starts with this quote that you said in one of my classes, there's no cure for the shame of writing. And like the book is so obsessed with Am I hurting people with my writing? Can you hurt someone with what you say? Um, But also, how can you really reach anybody else or connect to anyone else or have any kind of relationship at all with anyone else without um, both saying something, um, either verbally or on the page, you know, and expressing? And so there's, it's sort of, I have no answer to any of it, but the questions I think that I couldn't get away from were, uh, is this sort of the, the essence or the core of being human? Like, are we sound machines? Are we just machines that not just make sound as in noise, but sound as in um, language, utterance, uh, kind of vocal gesture? Um, and so are we that? And 
what is the city? Um, like, is the city itself a kind of sound machine? And by city, I mean like New York City, but also just like all of human civilization and and human beings together. I don't really think very much about um, nature sounds or animal sounds. Just I think this in this book in particular, but in my life, I'm pretty urban. Um, but you've spent a lot of time in the country. Yes, and I'm interested in that. But when I think, and maybe that's where the machine part comes in. Machine signifying the city. Yeah, and I guess, and I guess the the human made as mm-hmm. opposed to the natural, and and then there's of course um, this whole part of it that has to do with audio, um, both my sort of hours and hours spent doing the commonplace podcast and re-listening to it and sound editing it and and sort of visually seeing the sound waves of human speech and working with them as a as a new medium um, thinking about my my history growing up and hearing my mother as a storyteller um, and that being her primary kind of art um, and then thinking about you know, as as my kids get older, the way in which I interact with them becomes more and more linguistic and cerebral and less physical. Like, you know, obviously when they were babies and even when they were young, so much of our communication was nonverbal. And now so little of it is nonverbal. It's all verbal, 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 verbal. And as you well know, like Josh and I are just nonstop talkers. And so And sometimes I do, and you know, there's a lot in the book also about sex, the absence of sex, the absence of the physical. Um, I think there's like a longing for something that is not um, language and not sound and speech, but I don't really know where that is or (laughs) if that exists. And then I think, I think sort of also a a kind of uh, troubled, or not troubled, but like an anxiety about the poems, if they are poems, and I don't know if they are, whatever they are, an anxiety about the text, that it doesn't, it's not fully embodied, or it's not fully uh, manifested uh, on the page and that there's some element of whatever this book is and maybe all of my writing um, that exists in, in the, in the uh, oral and, and whether that means I'm not a good enough poet or whether it means I'm doing something else that just nece- necessitates performance um, but like what is the sound um, of, the, of the word not just the word yeah. <laughs> Another thing that occurred to me, it's a smaller meaning, is the, 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 the question you're asking of yourself, of, of your body, of your children's bodies and souls. Am, am I a person of sound mind and body? Oh, I hadn't even thought, like sound. Sound right. machine, particularly yes. this, the poems toward the end where, where you and the poet and her son are in a, a treatment room with someone who's doing a, a diagnostic history yes. of some kind and all geared to, you know, but in a way the questions of diagnosis and that, are, that haunt your work throughout of, 
um, not only because of the death of your mother, so that the issues of medical diagnosis, but of even moral diagnosis, bad wife. Yeah. But, but the, the, even happiness diagnosis, is this a, is this a, are these accounts of a troubled person with in a very dysfunction in a series of very dysfunctional relations, or is this just a very acute and um, comic, comically <laughs> exaggerated literary eye? Yeah. And so that, so, Boy, and I think I you're saying that. sound machine. Yes, reader. Despite everything I'm indicating, <laughs> I am of sound mind. Yeah, yeah, or at least not utterly broken. Yes. Or I'm still making noise yeah. or something. But that, oh, I love that. I had not thought of that. I had at one point thought about, like, to sound the depths. Yes, I hadn't thought um, of that. But I hadn't thought of, like, of sound, sound. mind, and body. And even though it's yeah. not a rhyme, the word wound. Yeah. Whenever I see sound machine, I think of wound. Yes. It's pretty all-purpose. Yeah. As a, okay, so that's, okay, okay, so that's question. question one. Question Love two it. is more complicated and gets back to something that maybe we spoke about in earlier recorded conversations or that we've it's just is familiar ground for you. You know how impressed and happy, impressed by and happy with I was with you when you were my student. And one of the one of the particular things I always loved, as you know, is how observant you were in your comments about po the poetry readings that mm. I might have required you to attend, or the literary readings, and that, that you had a level of um, scene setting and foible describing <laughs> that was um, virtuoso and comic. And so it so that struck that that's the first sign of a certain gift you have that I see flourish in this book, which has, which overlaps with what they would call in the art world institutional critique, mm -hmm. where I, I would, and this is a sort of a complicated way of phrasing yeah. this question, I would diagnose you as, or describe you as somebody who probably since birth was flooded with a sense of all the unspeakable material outside the frame, the social frame of what could be described, which means hmm. in, in the case of writing or these poetry reading reflections, there's the scene of poetic narration, there's the scene of poetry. You are flooded to a maddening, self-maddening extent with all the unspoken stuff around the scene of the poem. And in this book, it those sounds now dominate. There is no longer the poem. There is only the unspeakable noise outside of it. And so I think that the shame that, that has no cure, the shame of writing is not the shame of what you have to say that is so shameful, but a, a, a very early lodged sense of being the one um, accredited with, burdened with the shame of being, in a sense, all-seeing, mm. seeing too much, knowing too much. What, what happened, what if you're a person who, um, in an ordinary conversation, is so distracted by the topography of somebody's face that you can't continue a normal conversation? Mm. What if you're a clairvoyant who is so flooded with the past lives or the aura of somebody that you can't just stay on that level. So you're a kind of, 
institutional critique psychic of the scene of poetry, which creates shame because you then bear the responsibility of saying the things you notice that other people, that don't seem to bother other people. Oh, wow. So this is, I guess, my final question then. This leads (laughs) to the, um, the question of myths and simultaneous truths. It's a strength of all your work and I noticed it particularly here, that you, you allow yourself both to be punished by and stimulated by, in the interest of stimulating a reader who does not feel punished by these simultaneous cognitive systems at work, but you, you the character, Rachel, the poet, is, is pictures herself as being punished by various of these stories that are afloat but that never are really resolved. And there's a kind of Shakespearean green world comic ending where everybody gets married and maybe there's one malcontent who's exiled, but there is a happy ending implicit in, in all of your work, even the most melancholy, because all the stories get to be true at the same time. Huh. And it's, it's funny. I hope that it works out that way in your personal and familial life because <laughs> I don't have the information there of whether it's true. But the picture I get, in, so to be specific, like in a way the, the dominating one in the last few years has been, if you'll forgive the bluntness of my statement of sure. it, one would be, I wrote a book that killed my mother. Second, no book can kill anyone. Third... I don't know what the third one would be, but like that those, let's just say that there are these two simultaneous truths that are allowed equal um, uh, juridical reality. Yeah. And and another one would be... Well, um, I'm... I'm I'm a very good mother. I'm a terrible mother. I'm a good wife. I'm a bad wife. I'm... um, not supposed to, I'm at, a, I'm at a writer's colony, but I'm not supposed to write, yeah. but I'm writing anyway, but what I'm writing might not be poems. I'm, you know, and so yep. that there's, and it's, and in a funny, and, and it's, it's very, it's hard to know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what makes your work ultimately comic. Though, yeah. It's the floating of disaster scenarios that are true, but also the happy endings are true. I'm still stuck on the idea that just because people get married, that makes it a comedy and not a tragedy. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wait, is that a question? <laughs> it is a question. I guess what you would say about your um, or maybe I will I will say I will phrase it the way I did the first thing about that. You're flooded with scenes with a kind of meta knowledge of what's outside the scene of the poem mm. that you you like to imagine that many conflicting things are true at the same time, but that you, the sad thing is, or the tr- unhappy thing for you is that you bear responsibility for all the verdicts. Yeah. And so just like if, if one of the voices says, I wrote and published the book that killed my mother, even if that's proven untrue by many other voices, that first condemning voice gets to remain a little true right um isn't that just doesn't isn't everybody that, think that's just that, ambivalence that's right? ju- or or that's just true <laughs> <laughs> i mean i keep going back to that like i don't know i mean it 
I'm, I'm looking at your incredible paintings behind you, so I'm thinking about that. But, you know, if you paint something, a color, a shape, and then you paint over it, isn't it still there? Mm-hmm. I mean, it aren't, isn't it both true? You know, it was, it, or is it not? I don't know. I guess it's my feeling that you're, it is. You're, but you, I would say, are attached to the prison sentences that come with some of the underpaintings. Yes. Yes. I don't. So there's no statute of limitations. Even if the painting, right. even if the underlayer of culpability, of melodramatic culpability gets painted over by a sunnier picture, um, you ha- have always, are, are capable of being jolted by the shock of the underlayer reemerging to. Uh, yeah, itself. I don't. I don't think. I I thought everybody experienced life that way. It's very true. I, but that's not my experience of it. In my reality, both are both are true. I attribute this with a very lazy armchair psychologist kind of thing. I mean, just friendship wise, just knowing these things. I attribute some of this to what I know of your mother's work and its obvious connection to fables mm. and magic and of the, the very resonant line in this new book, but also I think in mothers where you, where your father says after your birth mother's death, it's going to be a lot harder to, to, to keep in touch with her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that something, whatever that represents a love, call it, it's just like magical thinking yeah, or like a, a the, or truth is a different way of seeing things where magical possibilities remain in play rather than that some things are actually no longer in question. Certain decisions have been made. Right. And I, I, I think you're right. And I think I don't have... Reality seems to be something that one has to work very hard to maintain that's my experience of life. And, and I think that the other piece of this is also like, once you write it, is that also a, a true, you know, uh, and then you can't take that back. So I, in, in my experience, that is kind of the, the case. But I think another big like realization for me in this book which seems so obvious that it's almost embarrassing to admit how much of an epiphany this feels like to me. But I do think that to some extent, you know, without an audience, um, without a reader, um, I don't really feel certain that I exist. And it's not just like which of me and which of my thoughts and feelings and, and stories and life histories is true. It's like, maybe I just don't even really, I I have the sense that unless I hold on pretty tightly, um, with a lot of, um, feedback from other people that maybe I'm just gonna, I don't know, cease to exist or I will never have existed. And so in, in that in that sense, it, it's like very important that what I write is true, but it also doesn't matter at all. And it's just it, it's not just the writing of it, though. It's it's somebody reading it or hearing it and and or, or anticipating that and knowing like, oh, OK, this is this is this is how I make sure that 
you know, when I show up at your studio to talk to you, that you even exist. I almost didn't. You had to, you had to text <laughs> me and send me a picture of my door. I think I'm here. Because <laughs> no. I, I, I didn't. I'm very moved by at the end, toward the end of your book, where you say, in, in a line that I think is a defense of your poetics and the, the art making of people who do it for themselves, for others, mm-hmm. is that, thing I thought I always understood is that I describe as best I can what my experiences are and I tell them to other people and they like hearing them. Mm, mm-hmm. And that that transmission is a permissible transmission of my interiority to you. So you dedicate the book to the you who is hopefully listening. And I, I think it's quite clear in your podcasts and in what you're doing with this project that you're sewing together a community of listeners and fellow speakers to ensure a community or a reciprocity that you're afraid the poem that no poems can do Mm. or why not build a world if you're afraid the world doesn't exist why not build it with this sound machine yeah and I think that's very um wise you don't have to have this for me but I wonder if you have any advice for me. Yeah, let me think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I do, actually. I'm oh, good. Sure oh, good. I do. Oh, good. Um, I'm very nervous. I mean, always, yeah. but, um, but in particular, like... I would say, my advice would have to do with that listening tour thing. Is that I would say, like having known you for a lot of your life, mm-hmm. you've signed into a lot of systems, systems that you did not, remove yourself from uh birth family good enough daughter Mm. um marriage being seen by others like having a marriage ceremony being accredited as a writer um being employed as a writer like just a lot of um and and you go you going about all these tasks with your brand of unusual levels of skill, attentiveness, and self consciousness, that you've already done enough mm. of belonging and of um, letting yourself be hailed by systems that may not have your welfare in mind, and so I th- the best thing would be not to stop listening, but to weigh much less. Um, don't put as much weight behind the things that other people say, that they may not be about you, and that you have much more freedom and much more impunity than you think you do. Don't feel that you need to be punitively or inhibitively sewn firmly into any system that you happen momentarily to inhabit. And nobody can see me just like my eyes are like popping out. And I'm, um, I think that's, that's, thank you, that's a gift.
the end of my, it's like been, been a year, a year mm -hmm. of many good things, poems. So many poems. So many poems. And a lot of the ones in this book were written in the last year. Mm. And some were written five, four, three, two years ago. But anyway, I'm interviewing you, child, okay. which I don't know how to do. <laughs> well, let's just see what happens here. I don't know okay. what we're doing either. All right. I'll run the show. Okay. Um, I, love, I love this part in the beginning where it says, she has my word. It's funny. The whole thing is very funny. <laughs> I did find like about three words I would suggest you consider taking out. Mm. But a very few. Very few. Were they because they didn't sound right to your ear or because you found them offensive or? Oh, not neither. Ah. I didn't quite believe them as I believed everything else. Fascinating. So they were just a little less, less brilliant. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and one of them was not that in which, because I see that when you say, now you can skip the lecture that anyway you weren't planning on attending, you're using good American uh, plain talk. And if you said, now you can skip the lecture which anyway you weren't planning on attending, is smarter. And I slightly prefer it. Hmm. And I put a little note in the um, border. I'm a brutal interviewer. I love it. But I do want to ask you a question. Why, if someone were to assert that this is not a poem, we're talking about confessional, um, why wouldn't it be a poem? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I think that a few, a few reasons. Um, one I, I have very mixed feelings about having taken the line breaks out um, of this poem. Where where did they go? Well, they... I don't see them anywhere. Right? So it, it's just like prose. And so one thing I'm, I'm sort of playing with in the book mm. is whether these pieces or whether this, these, these whatever they are, are poems or prose. And whether mm. there are things that that I feel more comfortable saying in poems or more comfortable I, than in saying in prose. Okay. So that's like an underlying question in the book, I think, of like, what is this? And I yes. think when I started writing the pieces that ended up being in Sound Machine, there are a few pieces that are very, very old. Um, but the pieces that I wrote, you know, more recently for this book, I... I was writing these lectures, including the one that's yes. not about photography, but is about yes, photography. Yes. And I had the, the conviction that I was never going to write another poem again. Oh. And part of that was because I felt that my writing had hurt my mother and it had hurt other right. people. Right. So then, but I was writing something. Well, yes. And so I think that's another piece of it. Like, if I say this isn't a poem, does that make it okay? Cool. Or if, Or if it is a poem, and this is something I think about a lot, and I wonder what you think about it, like, in part because poetry is not read by as many people and has a, a less, often a less transparent relationship to meaning, 
are you allowed to say certain things in poems that would not be okay to say in prose? So I'm not, it doesn't really answer mm. that question, but I think it's a, mm. it's like, well, maybe this, this isn't even a poem. Oh, yes. I have a question. This is my next interview question. Who have you intimidated? Mm. So like when I say that they're, this person is not easily intimidated and this person is not easily intimidated. Well, right? we know that there are people who intimidate you. Oh, yes. Oh, you're, and now you're asking me who have I intimidated? Yes. Oh, gosh, I don't know. You, you sound very innocent, I must say, which makes me immediately suspicious. Who have I well, I don't think, I, I, I'm not the nicest person, but I don't think I have intentionally intimidated someone. Okay, who have you not intentionally intimidated, accidentally? This is a rhetorical question, of course. I bet some of my students feel intimidated by me. Because you're so smart and you know so much? No. Actually, I really don't think my students feel intimidated by what me at all. Do you okay, do? I do think I know who. who, okay. who I think that um, I think some of the moms um, oh. that I interact with, especially if they're moms that don't work, I could be. This could be in my mind. Okay, that's fine. But I, I, I think I come across as kind of rogue, rogue. and kind of like, you know, maybe above it all. And, and and driven. And so maybe if... Those are wonderful adjectives. I think. Rogue. And rogue and above it all are very different. A rogue is like, I don't know, outside it all? Yeah. Okay. Have you ever tried to intimidate anyone and failed? Yeah. This past week, I went <laughs> to West Virginia, and I was on the sidelines of a soccer game, mm -hmm. And um, a father on the opposing team was very aggressive, physically um, intimidating to me. And, I j and he yelled at me. Um, and I tried to make myself like very big uh, and stand my ground. Um, but I did not succeed. That's so cool. Well, you're supposed to do that with bears also. I've been in bear country, uh -huh. and uh, you never run, and, and you, just, you just start shaking your finger, getting big, shaking your finger, and really sound angry. And you say, you. I can't do it, but I would be able to if I saw a bear. You bad bear. <laughs> but wait, why are you asking me that? I'm so curious. Because you said... Uh, you brought up the whole notion of intimidation. And then I didn't have a chance to look up intimidate and intimate. Oh. But I bet they don't come from the same time or fear. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Timid, acting afraid. Intimate, no. I think intimate's good and all the others are bad. But I haven't looked it up. Got it.
So, so I'm just going to interview you, right? And I can do whatever I want, say, ask you whatever I want. Yeah. And then you're going to make this into a part of an episode of Commonplace about you. Yes. Can you first of all imagine how uncomfortable I feel right now? Not about talking to you, but just about the idea of making it into an episode about me. Yeah, I mean, it's sheer vanity. Yes. You know? and I, <laughs> I mean, and I guess obviously that's something I want to talk about, right? It's like, to what extent is it about you? I mean, I feel like this book is like a play-by-play in a lot of ways of of all of these different episodes periods of time but also you know we are turning ourselves into representative people do you think about your readers thinking about your family when you think about them reading this book well I definitely think about you thinking about my family while you're reading this book because you are a reader I think of in particular um, but also because you've responded that way in a really interesting way to my books before, and I've written about this, um, like a comment that you made, uh, which was really kind of provocative in a, in a good way uh, to me about saying that like part of the charge um, of reading the work is like wondering uh, how Josh feels about b- the way he's represented in the work. When I'm writing, I don't, f- I think I'm just trying to be as clear as possible to myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think then when I'm revising or, or sort of like put making it into a poem, because sometimes it's just like a, a mess of words, um, and then it becomes at least a poem, um, which is like before revising even. But I think when I do that, am I thinking about the reader, thinking about my family? No, I don't think so. I think I'm still thinking about does this make sense? Does this go here? Does this sound right? And then I think later in this, in along at some point, I think, do I need to say this? Mm-hmm. Or what are the effects of saying this? I think I think more about my family thinking about what other readers think than what readers think about my family. But, but wait, so, wait let mean, me say what let me say one other thing because I feel like that you the part of your question I didn't answer um like to what extent is the is the work about me in my mind I think it's totally 100% about me and I feel a lot of shame around that um and I think that I I have all these ideas about like if I was a better artist I would make it less about me um like mm. it would be more like a novel and it would be more imaginative and it would be less reporting but I think that, that that's not to say that my version of it being 100% about me or my family is accurate or, mm-hmm. you know, but, it, but it's not, it's, it's never intentionally inaccurate. Right. So, but, you know, I, I mean, I think one of the things that's always drawn me to your work from even before I knew you is the fact that that shame is so much a subject of the work. I mean, that mm-hmm. it's encoded in there at every moment. And that's one of the things that right away I recognized that I needed. I needed company in my own shame, you know. And um, then I realized, okay, there's this handful of writers out there who, um, you know, Lowell very much among them for me. And, uh, you know, and then you who kind of a, like allow the taking of the pulse of that shame to be 
an overt subject of the work. You know, if there's anything about writing that's brave, that feels brave to me and and deeply useful and, and honest, you know? Well, first of all, I'm glad I could keep you company in, in the work of shame um, <laughs> or in, in writing through shame or, 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 yeah. I mean, here's the thing, right? The, the idea of keeping company is so important to this endeavor that we have. And I feel like shame is just the means by which you in the work create a room in which we mm. can both enter or it is one means you know um and and i think it's a it's a means that is very uh accessible to 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 me you know and it isn't specifically that i want to sit there and feel shameful with you in the poems it's that i need a way in and that ends mm. up being the way in or one way in and then i feel all kinds of things and i think that's i mean i i often think okay what is it that allows a poet to open a door into their their inner life through a poem that that someone else can enter um you know for some people it's a kind of idealized anger and for some people it's you know i'm so sad about this thing and you know or it's a bunch of things um so i don't know it, i mean i think that's like part of what i always get all mad about when people get get upset about confessional writing but i think they miss the point it's just a way of inviting people in do you feel like there's a name on the door that you open for the reader? Yeah. Um, I think it's grief. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And do you think that a writer ever has uh, the hope of changing the name on that door? Or am I, is the door for me always going to be some version of shame and for you some version of grief? Um, I think that the name can change and does change and perhaps must change, right? I mean, and that's another thing that's happening in this book for you, Rachel, which is this is not the Bad Wife Handbook. This is not a book about marriage. It's a book about motherhood. Um, and um, it's a book not about formless blobs that are, you know, kind of you're carrying around on your hip, but it's a book about people who are your children. As, as a as a person who likes to think about how poets develop and what uh, life in poetry means, I think that what one is trying to do is to increasingly become a precise renderer of one's own sensibility, right? I mean, that every book is an attempt at getting closer to whatever it is that only you have to say in the particular way that only you have to say it. Um, and the poets I love best are the ones in whose work I can see that process happening over the course of time, which is marked by books, you know? Mm. And, and I would, I would just add that in fact, you have a very precise mind. It's just that capaciousness is, is one of the, it's like a big part of your faith in the world, you know, that, that there's other stuff all the time. Mm. Um, if you're looking at any one thing, um, and I think formally you've been trying for a long time to figure out, well, other than, you know, it's like without using sound design, how do I make two things happen at once on a piece of paper, you know? And, and I think you're, you've gotten closer in this book. Oh my God. You just said so many things. I, oh my God. Okay. So many, so many, so many <laughs> important things. I mean, 
Yeah, maybe that's why I started using sound design because I needed to have two things happen at once. Why did I never think about that? Huh. Okay, but all right, back to form for one second, which is, you know, I think at some point you were frustrated uh, or disappointed that I had taken out the line breaks to uh, a lot of the poems and, you know, kind of had them look more and more like prose. I, I think you're also saying that the, those formal strategies or unformal strategies, whatever, were, are important to the way in which this book is kind of like closer to my sensibility. Another piece of this, which is hard to admit to, is that I also have always wanted to not be a poet, mm -hmm. um, even though I love poetry. And uh, and so part of taking the line breaks out was to be as accurate as possible to what I felt the heart of this pe these pieces were. But part of it was like, I've been trying to not be a poet for a long time, but I never succeed. And now mm -hmm. here you are saying, oh, not you have taken out the line breaks, but you are still a poet. They're just unconscionably long lines. You know, <laughs> are you saying to me that nothing I ever do, you know, that there's nothing I can do that will ever make me not a poet? Genre is all about expectation, right? It's all about what expectations the presentation of the piece gives the reader. And those expectations actually determine in many ways who your reader will be, right? There are lots of people who, if this book was labeled fiction and had a picture of a cupcake on the cover, would read it, who will not read it now, right? Because they expect that they don't know how to engage with it. And in fact, the reason why it's not fiction is because the pieces themselves are constantly beckoning the reader to engage with not what happens, but with how it is rendered and why it's rendered in those ways, right? You're not just saying, okay, my son texted me, so now you know what's in the text. You're, you know, and, and, and so the story moves on. My son said this, and then that happened. Um, you're saying, um, we communicate by text, and so I want you to attend to all the things that aren't being said. Mm. Um, and all of the subtext in the texts and all of this material that, that is implied by the words on the page, those are expectations that you can't have from a reader who wants to know what happens next. I mean, I mean, and in fact, you know, unless I'm mistaken, you are hoping that I will engage with all of that material. Yeah, I think you're stuck being a poet. I mean, look, you know, we all have our secret novels, um, you know, in which we try to leave all of that stuff out and just say what happened. The problem, I suspect, for both of us is that, um, in fact, in our imaginations, nothing happens. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, there is only just subtext, you know, that's all that interests us enough to bother writing it down so i think i think we fail as 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 prose writers
Hello. Sorry about that. I don't know how we got cut off. Okay. Yeah, you you just got cut off uh, when you were saying you were having a love affair. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I was actually saying (laughs) not really a love affair. I'm having, I'm in that like love affair period where you've been sick, but then you feel better and you just feel so grateful to be better that like everything else is kind of okay. I'm sorry to hear that you were sick, but I'm glad that you're recovered and you feel great and appreciating life again. I um, I love that you're doing this. Um, you're an amazing interviewer. So it's, you know, I'm, I hope that I'll be able to get the conversation going the way you do with all of your interviews. And um, it's nice to have you at the other end. And, you know, as with all your other books, but uh, I found this to be, especially the case with Sound Machine, I found Sound Machine to be absolutely fascinating, identifiable, uncomfortable, messy, daring, a little rude, hilarious, wise, and admits all the self-reflexing hand-wringing, or despite it, or maybe because of all the hand-wringing, I also found it to be absolutely profound and um uh, and always it's almost like in vowing never to write a poem you've also kind of written in ours poetica Mm. in a weird way in a way because you're always talking about what a poem is and what a poem isn't um but I was also interested in what you were saying about providing ethical guidelines for yourself and one um ethical guideline that I noticed that you kept breaking was um, the act of naming people that you write about, you know, which is kind of a, I guess that's a taboo subject, uh, that's sort of taboo in memoirs or any kind of autobiographical writing, um, or it seems so based on reading your book. But then what I find both funny and a little bit shocking is that you keep naming the writers who you write about. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was wondering about this kind of act, the, the, the naming, you know, um, why do you keep, why is that both taboo and why do you keep breaking it? Yeah. That, I mean, that is such a good question that I have like no easy or complete answer to. I mean, I guess, I guess part of the question is, is it taboo? Like, is is does every oh i don't know yeah i don't know either i think it is but it's the oh, say one thing sure. i i just think it it seems like it's taboo because you keep mentioning an editor or someone who says take all the names out right you know so there's like this there's always some other authoritative figure who's telling you to take all the names out and then but you keep the names anyway right and I, so anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, no, not at all. I mean, I think that this question is a question that I've like, you know, that's there was an editor who was urging me to take the names out. Um, and I did take a lot of the names out, not all, obviously, but but several of the names out of um, pieces in the pedestrians. And I'm not sure how I feel about having done that. And some writers um, that I know don't have any qualms at all about just naming anyone they want to 
and you know, I think I think about like Frank O'Hara, for example, and people's sort of affection for that kind of like name droppy poetry um, and the intimacy, you know, of his work and other poets of the New York school, the way that they use names and, and kind of, you know, and then I also think about the idea of um, what are some of the problems of not naming names, like, you know, of, of basically abstracting another specific human being or, you know, or of like almost plagiarizing in the sense that if you misattribute um, something that happened or something someone said, either to a person where you use a different name for them, perhaps to protect them, but it's still a different name, or, or to have no name and like what happens as we abstract you know, people or um, specific occurrences, you know, what happens when we like, let go of facts. I, I also know that um, people don't, some people don't want to be named, some people don't want to be written about some people, even if even if you don't use their name, some people don't want to be recognizable, or some people don't want even their story, or their relationship to you to be exposed you know, in any way. And, and so I think that it's both very specific to the, to the question of like, whether you use someone's name, but it's also really uh, general to this idea of like, just how do you live in the world and respectfully be in relationship to other people? So for me, maybe the crisis is around writing and around naming, because that's kind of at the heart of what I do. But I think that people who are not writers have a similar crisis of how to, it's basically like, how do you treat other people? Um, and I, I guess I, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ultimately, I don't really, I mean, there's, there doesn't seem to be a way to live life, or at least I haven't found it, in which you do no harm at all. Because uh-huh. if you, uh-huh. if you, and this comes back to paying attention as well, like, I guess I, I want to believe that, that paying attention to a person, um, or to the world is an act of love, even if it results in a, in in criticism or in conflict, Uh uh you know, like what does it, you know, to, to, to not name someone and to not pay attention to someone and to not, you know, to almost to not see someone, um, to not acknowledge someone, Uh all of those I think are acts of harm as Uh well, Uh but people, Uh editors, readers, um, seem to have there, there's just like a, there's a lot of like heat around this question of like whether to use someone's name whether to use their real name whether to use any name whether to use you know whether to have recognizable details and I think that that's I, that's something I haven't figured out at all my my memory of talking to you um, for the commonplace conversation was that you were struggling with a lot of sort of similar or adjacent questions and that 
part of, and those questions maybe felt different to you because you were writing prose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. really interesting to me, this idea of like, so are there different, should there be different guidelines for poems um, than for prose, than for journalism, than for, uh, uh, you know, all these different forms? I think it's fascinating that there's something about, uh, you know, um, people treat facts differently um, depending on the genre that they're writing in. Um, with your uh, with your book, uh, Sound Machine, I mean, I think this is, you know, whenever anyone writes autobiogra- autobiograph- autobiographically, this is a problem that everyone has, right? Like how... Um, how much, how revealing can you be? How much can you expose the person that you're writing about? But I, I love what you're saying here, though, that, and I haven't thought about it this way, which is that, you know, that it could also be a gesture of love to name the people that you are writing about. And, and I was thinking that, you know, what you're also doing in Sound Machine is, providing a kind of community through your naming, which is what, you know, poets like, you know, Robert Creeley or a lot of the, the, or a lot of the New York school poets did, but what's really, it almost seems like it's, it's a feminist gesture too, because you're naming a lot of female writers who you're corresponding with. So this I in this book is not just solitary, but, um, you know, it shows, how uh, this eye is surrounded by other friends who many of them happen to be female, but though that she's corresponding with and trying to kind of think of these ideas and by attributing them, you're also paying respect to them. And, um, you know, I think there's something very wonderful about that too. Maybe I can ask about, about your poem, Sound Machine, but you know, I was interested in this one, uh, the poem um, that precedes it. Five months later, I finally have something to say. And I was just wondering, why did that, why did that poem come before Sound Machine? And, um, and that's also a poet that you chose not to name, which I thought was interesting too. Was there a decision why you chose not to name that poet? Um, okay. I, first of all, I have so many things to say. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, and you're already like running. <laughs> oh, you could respond to what I was saying before. <laughs> well, I think that, let me say if, what, something in response, and I think it also partly answers this question, which is, I think that there's something important to me. So like, to what extent is does the naming conversation overlap with gossip, or diary entries, or emails, you know, and gossip is both really bad, and can be really hurtful, and also can be a, a kind of life-saving, like literally life-saving form of community building and, uh, and, and sustaining and, uh, and identifying. And, you know, there have been so many times 
in my own life, not to mention in the history of women, where um, these kinds of forms of, of, of communication have been uh, really necessary. Um, and, and, and usually are in opposition to like high art or, you know, literary production, um, which is, which is sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, seen as more about imagination, um, and, uh, artifice and refinement and abstraction and not the personal and not the, Oh, I went over here and I saw this person. And did you see what she was wearing? And did, oh, she said this and she said that. And they said this and then they did this to me. And and I think that that my work is is like very obsessed with like what is the poem and what isn't the poem and is it okay to kind of have poetry that really is much more like memoir or even like gossip or even like a note that you would pass in class, mm-hmm. you know, or. Mm-hmm an email that you mm-hmm, would send mm-hmm. in your act in the act of naming the people in your book it seems to be both an act of love uh there's both it's both an act of love and act of act, uh, attributing but also it seems to be an act of provocation in a way yes um, but and which is something that i can feel sympathetic with um because i i think i do that to a certain extent and it's to it's to almost prov- to provoke provoke confrontation, provoke dialogue, provoke maybe some kind of reconciliation can be reached. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in having these names. It's like you have sort of this like general audience, but you're also direct, speaking directly to that person by naming that person. You know, and uh, and there's something kind of uh, what I find. You know, to, please don't take offensive offense by this, but I find it kind of pleasingly aggressive yeah. in, in that act too but there's also love but there is aggressive yes but there's also love and care too it's like it's all those things you know um, can I ask just one last question and sure. we could end it here yeah there uh, and it was this last question and it's not a little question I'm sorry but uh Janice also an, an effort that I think a lot about I think most people do but it, it's See, it, it seems that to write about whiteness is to write about shame. Um, they uh, they seem inextricably linked um, as far as your book goes. Do you want to get over the feeling of shame? I think that I might want to come to a place where I have more subtle ways of describing the many different kinds of feelings that I'm sort of all lumping together as shame. And I think that I might want to let go of some of them, particularly the kinds of feelings that I'm calling shame, which could be so overwhelming that I just like want to give up or I just you know, that, that are sort of like, that stop me from trying harder or from, or from staying in relationships with other people. But I do think that some of the things that I'm calling shame are like super, super important. Um, And if you don't feel those things, you can't learn how to be a, 
more thoughtful person and you can't, it's like, I don't know. I think it's like an alarm system that's really helpful, you know, to think like, wait, why do I feel so terrible? What is it? Well, one possibility is I might be acting badly. And so I need to think about that, you know, or another possibility might be, I'm not acting badly. Um, I've, I've, I have a set of received acculturated ideas about the way that I should or should not act that um, are inappropriate and part of the patriarchy and part of white supremacy. And I need to let those go and, and try to actively work against the shame that I feel in, and, and change that system or change that way of thinking. So it, but, but feeling the shame is important I think, um, even though it's pretty terrible, because I think that it helps me determine, like, what kind, it helps me think through, like, what kind of shame is it? And what's the location of this shame? And where does it come from? And is this something that I need to use to change myself that I need to use to change something else? And then I also think that expressing the shame, admitting to the shame, investigating the shame uh is is a turns out to be a pretty good way of making connections with other people who are similarly you know going through life with you know a similar set of of like obsessions and kind of temperaments you know and then if you just if if you kind of like work to get to a zen place where you know, you don't feel any shame. I don't know if I, I don't, I don't. And then you're like with other yogis all the time. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't imagine that as a possible <laughs> future for me. <laughs> are you, are you mm-hmm. hoping for that? <laughs> for me to get over my shame? I think it depends what kind of shame we're talking about. Um, it's shame. I think it depends if we're talking, if I'm punching down or punching up, you know, um, I would like to get over my, my shame or the former shame. I, I already have the former shame that I, I had being Asian or, you know, being a woman or just being an Asian American woman. Cause I don't think that's very, that's constructive, but I do think that, um, shame is important to making you feel like more of an empathetic person. I mean, I I, I I think about shame quite deeply too. And I was thinking of what there's this, it's like, uh, you know, Sylvan Tompkins talks about how shame is really uh, healthy for um, a democratic society, for a democratic society, because shame allows you to evaluate where you are in your position in society. But it's also important that the shame, that shame isn't debilitating you know, that you're able to kind of act from that shame in some way, which I see that you're doing with Sound of Shame, which was um, just a book that I really related to and I love. Well, thank you, Kathy. Thank you. So 
You said, I'm always this nervous when I have a new book coming out. I guess the question is, so how does it get resolved? Um, or, well, I or, think you often get disappointed, even though your books have had some success. Ultimately, it's disappointing. And that ta that takes precedence over your nervousness. Mm. When someone else, someone else's book gets more attention than yours, when you're when you see that only fifteen hundred, two thousand, twenty five hundred books sold, and it's been years, and the reviews there there were a few reviews, but there aren't going to be any more, and it's just kind of done. I think you end up feeling like. The, the feeling of wanting, uh, that was it? There was a kind of that was it feeling that, that drowns out, obliterates any nervousness. Like, So that's what I have to look forward to. I mean, to. honestly, well, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm, 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 maybe I'm foolish, but I always am optimistic that it's going to be, that the next one's going to be more. Yeah, I don't, I don't share that expectation. That's, uh, that you say that's optimistic. I don't, I don't think I really have that feeling. I, I don't, I'm not denying that there's disappointment for me, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Something's not quite right about that. Well, then the other thing that happens, there's another cycle in your, that I've noticed in your writing life, which is it takes a lot of energy to deliver the book into the world. And that is a, also a, a require, there are a lot of requirements that are, it is a little bit like a pregnancy in that way. You have to fill out the questionnaire. You have to look at the galley. You have to do the readings and um, support the book, out, you know, until it's out in the world. And that keeps and those seem like those are important tasks that you have to do. And then you're not doing you're not doing any writing. And then at some point, those tasks dwindle and you do have a darkness that sometimes I don't look forward to that emerges in you where you're like, I haven't written anything in a really long time. And what am I going to do now? Mm. You know, and then it's, I'm never going to usually say some version of, I'm never going to write anything again. And then you usually do. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's some relief in writing something new, but it's also confusing to you. It's like, there's like a confusing kind of painful, like, I'm doing this again, kind of, you know, or I don't know, right? But it's it's like a little bit compulsive. It's always a little bit, I'm always relieved. And usually you show me something that you've written. This is, sounds really like a bad way to live. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. it doesn't, I'm just reporting. I wish I was, I was joking with Moses about this when I gave him the book. I said, this isn't really for you. And he was like, oh, no, no, I know. And then we, I was sort of like, I guess it's about you or maybe at moments it's to you, but it's not really for you. And he totally gets what I mean. And I do wish that there was a loving way to say, not to you because you clearly like it, um, but to my dad, to your mom, to people who are close to us personally and are very supportive of my career and my books. And, you know, um, I just wish there was a, a kind way to say, like, do yourself a favor and don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being well, excited about it. But really, really, you don't need to read it. 
And in fact, maybe you shouldn't. And it's not, it's not the same extent to which obviously I felt about mothers and my mom's feelings about that book and my other books, because my relationship with these other people is much less complicated. And, and also I didn't write Um, about them, but I don't think that you are confused about that. I mean, really, first of all, you're talking about, who are you talking about? Just a very few people. Yeah. And those people, you may not know that this is what you're saying, or you may not, I mean, but aren't you saying on some level, like, I don't really need to be known by you to, to this degree? No, I mean. Let them, <sighs> let them see, let them learn, let them know, let them, let them know you. I mean, you're the, the people, other people in our lives who are very close with us, like Jeremy or Tom, you don't feel that way about them. Do you? Is it for uh, them? I love thinking of Jeremy reading that. Oh, book. I don't know. I don't. I. I don't really. I don't know. I mean, there's like sex stuff in there. Like you. You. You want. You want my dad. You're to- saying this. I don't know. Do I want? I don't. My. It doesn't. Oh, you're now. You're going back to your dad. I mean, he first of all is as more protected than I am. He won't. <laughs> he'll see what he wants. He'll see what he what he sees. Well, I don't know. It's just a, it's a it's a weird it's a weird feeling that some of the people who are most excited about this book and most supportive it's not for them. I think that's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, the people some of the people we see on a daily basis, my 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 kids' teachers. Well, right. You know, so if you were an actress and you were in Game of Thrones, and you were in a scene where you were like savagely attacked. <laughs> like, Do you mean every scene <laughs> in Game of Thrones? Um, if you were an actress and you were exposed on stage, right, right, or right. On, in a film, right, is that not? And you wouldn't want your kids to watch you in those roles, right? Right. That's a, that's a good analogy, I guess. What is it like for the kid, you know, of Julianne Moore, for example? Right. There was some. I didn't you listen know. to it, but there was some whole podcast about like. Molly Ringwald showing not wanting her kid to watch like the breakfast club or something. I don't even know. Right. There's something worse about it and better about it. I think what's worse about it is that, you know, when you're an actor in a film, it's your job to inhabit the role as fully as possible and hold nothing back. And, you know, but you, you didn't, you didn't say, Hey, everybody, I want you to see me naked. You know, that's what I want. (laughs) It's like, no, the role called for that. And so in order... Well, maybe a, a stand-up comedian is more, would be more mm-hmm. a certain type of stand-up comedian. Okay. So alongside the book, you also are doing a sound version of the book. One of the germs of the idea was, you know what? I think people respond when I read. People, people these long, long poems, people get it in a different way when they hear me read them. Mm-hmm. How can I... I think at first you were wondering, like, how can I put that into the poems on the page? But then you're like, you know, maybe I maybe I can bring this to I can make an audio version so that people can can hear it and understand it and engage with it in a way that I've seen people do in readings. And then you got more. And then I think once you had that seed, you began to consider it. You didn't want to just give a reading into a microphone like you can do you realized that you could do a lot of different things and so you wanted to do some experimenting do you know how many placentas i mean poems i've made in my lifetime 
Some were like flowers, a slowly gathering female harmonium of orgasmic expression. Some sustained no one and were but the abrupted, aborted, stillborn materials of conception that unbecame me. Tonight I try to conjure small clitoral bulbs buried deep below the rock-hard terra while Allen Ginsberg sings Hari, Hari, Hari Krishna. How I love to hear Allen Ginsberg singing and saying I'm not so sure about the original sin thing you want to push on everyone. Alan says, The great secret is no secret, and reads his poem, Wales Visitation. O oh, mother, no harm on thy body, says Allen Ginsberg, smelling the brown, vagina-moist ground, harmless, tasting the violet thistle hair, sweetness, declaims Allen Ginsberg. And when Allen Ginsberg tells Buckley to stop protecting all the old aunts of America from the clubs of language and the blood of words that's running out of people's heads, the camera lingers on Alan's well-worn boots, as if to discredit him. Alan, I love your dusty shoes and blue socks, but your jeans are too short, and Peter Orlovsky should have snipped that stray thread before letting you go on television. My question or thought about this is related to some of the things we were just talking about, about the poems themselves. Like it's in some ways more artificial and, and some, in some ways less artificial because it really is your voice, Mm -hmm. but you're also being manipulative in some ways by using, playing with people's emotional responses with music and, editing and echoing and doing all kinds of different things that, I mean, you're not even done creating it. So you'll probably do some other experiments, but you're being, those are manipulations and performative manipulations that make it in some ways more, it's more artifice and less direct, even as it seems somehow more direct, which is fascinating to me, which takes me all the way back to the book itself, which is, I think what you're sometimes doing tricking a way in which people are tricked in the in a moment in when they're reading like it's as if they're witnessing the interactions between people even when it's obviously not true i mean one question we already talked about is what are you afraid of you didn't really answer that question another question is what is it what is this for what's the point of all this like here at this moment in time with the book just about to come out, what, what was, what was, what is the point of all of this? I mean, what's the point? I think there are, I think there are a lot of moments that I think that I think there's no point there. I think most of the time I think there's no point. And I just read Sarah Vapp's new book, Winter, and I think that um, even though 
the content is different and the form is different that 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 the books winter and sound machine are very similar in in a lot of ways in their in their kind of um exposure of the private mental space of a woman with children and the kind of like inclusivity of material and expansiveness um, within the mind and the domestic space. And I, that book was just, um, you know, I was so moved by that book, moved is the wrong word, like opened up by that book. It felt both familiar and scary and new territory. And so when I, when I read that and I thought, oh, I appreciate this so much, I have to acknowledge that my book and Sarah's book are talking to each other. And so I can imagine a reader having a similar experience with Sound Machine and that's meaningful, you know, or I'm three quarters of the way through Anne So Boyer's. there is a you, there is a you that the book is for. I guess it's I mean, you dedicated for the, the reader, I really, I think, I mean. But I mean, it's not, you know, it's, there's some, there's someone out there who's going to recognize her, herself. I don't think it's, I don't think it's all, it's a gendered um, reader. And I actually don't. Um, I mean, the books that often have this effect on me are often written by women, but not, not only, certainly. I'm reading Ann Boyer's book. Um, I mean, Garments Against Women was an incredible book that I read earlier this summer, but now I'm reading The Undying. And I mean, that book is life-changing. And so, and she asks that question in the book over and over again, like, what's the point? What's the point of writing this book? What's the point of this? What's the point of that? Much more eloquently than that. But um, as a reader, I'm reading it thinking, I'm so glad she spent her time writing this book as opposed to doing other things, which at the time may have felt more meaningful to her or more important because I think most of the time writing a book and then for sure the time spent promoting it and going to readings and doing the business stuff of it, which, you know, you can't make money at it. You just can't. So it seems really idiotic to do that. So I guess the moments where it feels, I mean, sometimes I feel like, well, what should I be doing? Everything else is worse than this. <laughs> you know, um, everything else hurts other people and hurts the world. But then I guess the moments where I feel like positive about, you know, what's it for? What's the point is those moments when I think about the ways in which like my engagement as a reader with, with books and as a, you know, as a, as a consumer of art has, has been, you know, so profound, like one of, you know, for both of us, I mean, we, you and I read different books, but I would say, you know, reading is one of your great pleasures and sustaining things in your life, like being connected to a narrative or, 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 or having your mind engaged in, in a process of like looking or listening or reading that just, I don't know, it makes you feel alive or seen or confused or in, in a way that like almost nothing else does. And, and so I guess I feel like to be part of that as a reader and as a writer, imagining someone on the other side of it, that, that does feel like in, in the moments when I let myself be sentimental about it, 
I think it's a way of being close to another person, especially a person that you don't know. It doesn't have to be a person you don't know, but, but the profound nature of being able to have a human connection with another person who's a stranger, who's unlike you, who mm-hmm. has a different experience than you do, and to kind of feel known by them and to, and to like, you know, to, to be with someone. I think, I mean, I think that's kind of what Sound Machine is really about the, you know, on some level, like the, the desire, the fear that it's not possible to be close to somebody else. Well, you, we just, we read that review this afternoon. Clearly one person had, she says essentially that Yeah, she had that experience. So you got one. I know that there are others, but I almost feel like preemptively frustrated with you in a, in a future dark moment of yours. Like, and I, I'm inclined to have this like Abraham and God, like, conversation about how many well what if there were if there were 20 people would that be enough for you if there are 30 would that be enough if there are 40 like how many do you need how many because because it, it's, it's so already enough isolating. it's already enough i think yeah. i mean i mean i think i mean it's just frustrating i know i'm i'm, I'm no I'm no i pret- think that's a good question yeah. because for me to say it's already enough is not about being humble or feigning modesty or anything like that the idea that that like the four people even who are going to talk on this podcast that they read the book you know mm-hmm. that Sharon Olds read my book that Wayne read my mm-hmm. book that Craig has read it multiple times that Kathy read it and for the first time and 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 liked it you know i don't care that she thinks it's a good book i mean that's nice and it would probably hurt if she was like this book is a piece of shit but that that it meant something to her that it that I that that I that now I'm in a conversation with her because her books are part of my book. Uh, it, I mean, if it was really only those four people right there, um, it is enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel involved too, and I'm I I I feel a share of it myself, which. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think you and I could have a whole other conversation, and it would be a whole other interesting podcast about the different way in which the book functions as like a third person or a third force in our relationship. You know, because you know, sometimes I I I feel like, and I, I you know, I've made this joke before. I've 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 said this before. You know, when I see someone on the street and someone says like, "Well, how are you?" I feel like, what am I supposed to say? Good, bad, mm-hmm. nice weather. Like if you want the answer to how am I, read all of my books. <laughs> and of course, that's not, I don't mm-hmm. say that to anybody, but there well, is I'm a way. very close to, to p- just paying my therapist for however many hours it took him <laughs> to read. Your, like I'm rather than me describe you, just like, why can't he just read? those books right <laughs> right that's a good question and and what Your i was therapist too. right right and you know but what i was going to say was there is a way in which i communicate to you through the poems um which is probably a problem but you know there's a way in which i i am close to you and you are close to me through the process of my writing these these poems Um, that's not so much what I'm describing with these other people, obviously, because you and I have a very different relationship, Mm -hmm. but, um, it is enough. And I'll just say one more thing about that, which is, I, I do think that it is confusing to me to try to 
be ambitious um, and to try to, I mean, there are writers who I really, really admire and respect who have a very um, like allergic reaction to the transactional nature of um, writing and publishing. Mm -hmm. And they just want nothing to do with it. And they're, you know, they don't want to do readings and they don't want to promote their books and they don't want to do all this stuff. And I, I, I both respect that. And I also feel like it's a little disingenuous, or at least for me, it would be because I do want the book to be available to people who might want it. And it's very hard to know about a book of poetry, uh, unless someone is promoting it. I mean, they're never in the bookstores. You have to, you have to order it. You have to, you have to look, you have to, you have to know about it. You're not going to accidentally find my book. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that raises a lot of questions of that are different than the writing questions about like, who do I think I am that I think, you know, people want to get my book and mm -hmm. I'm trying to push back against that feeling and feel it's okay to make this episode to, uh, travel, to read from the book, to, you know, to do all these things. But I'm also trying to remember that all of those things don't matter to me at all compared to what you just asked. Like how many readers is enough? I already have enough. And so trying, both of those things are true. And how, how do I, how do I navigate between them? You know, how do I, where do I put my energy? Also, how do I make sure not to conflate um, number of copies sold, money made, reviews, um, with the success of the book. Well, and I need to ask again, though, so about what you might be afraid of. It's different than what, what than saying you're nervous, you know? Like, are you so vulnerable in this book that you, that if someone takes you to task, are you going to be able, are you going to be, are you going to handle it? Like, in other words, or I, that's just one thought. I mean, I'm really scared of hurting our kids. Mm -hmm. So, or, and I'm really scared of hurting anyone the way I upset my mother. Um, but I think, I think I'm, I, I mean, this fear is in the book, mm -hmm. you know, almost on every page, like this feeling, it's not even a fear, this feeling of it's, I mean, shame is the closest word that I can come to it of, I guess, on some level asking for attention, which, which is to say that writing anything, um, is a way of seeking the attention of the reader. And then certainly writing about yourself, writing about your life, like, it, you know, that, that sort of voice in my head, that's like, who do you think you are? And so I imagine a review um, that just says like, what is she doing? Like, why does she, what, like, uh, why did she think anyone would be interested in this? I guess is, is, if, is, is in a way the review that I imagine with it, with a great trepidation, you know, this isn't a book, this isn't poetry, this isn't, but you know, I, on every page, I'm like, is this a book? Is this poetry? Why am I doing this? Who's this for? You know, so I, I, I either shouldn't be surprised if somebody says the exact same questions I'm asking myself, um, you know, or hurt by it or, um, yeah, 
I don't know. Well, one one thing is, and this is another topic I don't, that is true about your work, which is that there are times when, like, I don't know, I, I saw David Cross live recently, and he tells a story about his um, wife in the shower, and so, I don't know. I mean, there was part of me that was wondering, like, even there, where there's a real autobiographical style of, of co- comedic presentation, like, I was wondering whether or not he how much he was making up with you really no one thinks that about your they might think you got it wrong or that you're not that you're biased in some way or you know but no one thinks that you're like just making shit up maybe they do i don't know people still believe in the speaker I mean, I don't know. You and I just we're we're weird that way. But but I, mean, to go I back often to say the, there are two sides to every story, which isn't the same as saying that you're making shit up. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm I don't even I'm not good at that. I mean No one thinks that you I mean it would be interesting to do to try to do one that was Yeah, like you know. what if someone found out that I don't even have a husband or kids? <laughs> Just like all these books, it's just fiction. It's just like I really inhabited the mindset of the speaker. Like that would be wild. Mm -hmm. Would that make me a great artist? I think it would. That would make me a great artist. This has been episode 74 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, or in this case, your guest, Rachel Zucker. This episode featured Josh Gorin, Wayne Kostenbaum, Sharon Olds, Craig Morgan Teicher, and Kathy Park Hong. It was produced and edited by me and Katie Fernelius, with production help from Doreen Wang and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks from Wave Books, Soft Skull Press, Penguin Random House, Boa Editions, Noemi Press, and Grey Wolf for books for this episode. The music you have been listening to was composed by Judah Darwin Zucker Gorin and performed by Judah on keyboard and Moses Zucker Gorin on guitar. Thank you to Wave Books for your great care with Sound Machine, the book. To my Kickstarter backers, without whom there would be no Sound Machine audio, to Commonplace patrons who make this podcast possible, and to you, listener. Thank you for listening.
Let me just hear how that sounds. 